Hi there, and welcome to another episode of African Business Stories. Africa is the only region in the world where more women than men choose to be entrepreneurs. What this says to me is that the story of business in Africa is the story of the African businesswoman. So we're on a journey of discovery to find these women and tell their stories. On the show, we will hear from female innovators and entrepreneurs building and running businesses in Africa. They will share the highs and lows of their entrepreneurial journey and lessons learned along the way. Some of these women you may know and many you may not, but I assure you that all their stories are inspiring in their own right. My hope is that these stories will inspire you to reach for your dreams and leave a legacy for generations to come. It makes such a big difference to us if you can rate, review, and share our episodes. You can do this mainly on Apple Podcasts, and you can find us on all podcast platforms. If you're in Africa, Spotify is now available, so check us out there. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. On the show today, I chat with Sarah Kumalo, mountaineer, explorer, and executive coach. She's the founder of Summits with a Purpose and the founder and host of the podcast Because It's There. We talk about how suffering personal loss caused her to lean into a life of service and impact. She set an audacious goal to summit the seven highest peaks in the world. On May 16, 2019, which happens to be my birthday, she became the first black African woman to summit Mount Everest. She has gone on to achieve the same feat as the first black African woman to reach the South Pole. She shares lessons from the journey, which are applicable both in life and business. Let's get into it. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to African Business Stories. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on your platform. I really do appreciate it. It's a good evening on my side, and I'm super excited to be joining you on your platform. Same here, same here. You you have quite an interesting heritage, and I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about that, because in researching you, I know you're South African, but I think you were born in Zambia, and there might be some Rwandan heritage in there as well. So talk to us a bit about your heritage. So my, my mother is from Rwanda. Uh, my grandparents were missionaries, left Rwanda in early 50s uh, to do the missionary work in the DRC. Um, and uh, my mother went to school in Zambia because in the DRC they used to go to school on Saturdays. And I'm a Seventh-day Adventist and we, the Saturdays arrested. So my grandfather sent all his kids to a, uh, an Adventist school in Zambia. And there my mother obviously had us. Um, but having said that, although I was born in Zambia, I started my primary school in the DRC, which was Zaire at the time. Um, so I was raised by my grandparents initially until I was 13. I thought they were my, my parents. I called wow. mom and papa. And then I realized the auntie that used to visit me is actually my mother. Um, yeah. And uh, so I really was raised as a Rwandese. And I realized that actually um, I was Zambian, born in Zambia, and my father was Zambian. Um, and uh, I moved to South Africa, got married here for 22 years, uh, and I changed, I naturalized. I changed okay. my humanity, and I'm here, and my kids are both uh, South African. 
That's fantastic. So, so how old were you when you moved to South Africa? I moved to South Africa after my first degree, actually. I moved to South Africa in 99. Yeah. So in terms of your childhood, what would you say are some of your fondest childhood memories? Wow. <laughs> Riding my bike. My grandmother was the only, actually, she was the only woman, an old woman that used to ride a bike. Uh, and they bought me a, a smaller bike for kids. And then I, that I remember very well. Um, and uh, when we stayed in Kipushi behind our house, we had a small little hill. I used to, I pretty much used to play by myself because I was playing with the boys. So I used to go mm-hmm. up that hill uh, and sit up and really just to look around. I was pretty much of a tomboy more than anything, you know, um, and, and I loved that. Then when I moved to Zambia at the age of 13, I suddenly found myself in the house with my sisters. So we were seven sisters. So that mm. was chaos. I came from being the youngest <laughs> to, <laughs> to like the second born with all these, you know, very gaily doing doing our hair, you know, and uh, which I really wasn't used to. So that was fun, just, you know, having a whole tribe um, mm. of girls. And, uh, and I became almost like the protector. Because, um, you know, if anybody bullied my, my sisters, I was called and I'd sort it out, you know. Um, yeah, I was, yeah, I think I loved that, the, the unity, the camaraderie, you know, and, and my mother just telling us how we, we can be anything, you know, mm-hmm. irrespective of where we are. That I remember very fondly. I think that is where I kind of dared to just do stuff. One of the most interesting things, actually, when I moved to Zambia is that um, my primary school was in French. I couldn't speak mm-hmm. English very well. So mm-hmm. what I did well in school was sciences and maths. The rest, I was struggling. So I took a year away. I just did English before I converted. So that also forced me not to have very many girls that were friends because I was struggling to communicate. Um, but I could play ball with the boys, you know, I could just, you know, um, that worked for me. And I I watched a lot of cartoons. We only had cartoons for one hour. Loved doing that. And that was also part of me trying to learn English, you know. Um, The other thing that if I go back to my years in the DRC, my grandmother used to have these fields. So she would Mm. plant maize, um, you know, peanuts, soybeans and beans and during holidays, everybody would go. I'm just, I was so young, I'd just be naughty and maybe just collecting this and that, but that was fun, you know. Um, and the stories she would tell while you're doing this or while you are you're harvesting, that was, I, I remember that very fondly. That's lovely. So, so what did you study in university? So I did accounting with a minor in uh, MIS, computers, for my first degree. And when I came to South Africa, I wanted to do, um, to become a chartered accountant. And okay. I decided against it because I realized it, it's different numbers, but same routine. And, and it just became monotonous for me. So I decided to actually do CIS, which was introduced to me um, by somebody. When I, I, I took like, you wait for results when you do your A-levels. So during that time, I took a job and I was working for this accountant who had done CIS, so she introduced me to it. So I did that. So I am actually a chartered um, governance officer 
that's okay. that's but I've always worked in e-commerce and, uh, and and business. So you started your career with one of the major banks. And I read that you suffered personal loss at some point that caused you to change gears. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience and what it did for you? Absolutely. So I was uh, um, working for one of the big banks here. here. Uh, it's, it's the first Rand group. I was part of the team that we're doing there. Uh, innovations. We, we were actually uh, we started what is called. I joined them when they started Ebux. It's a, an electronic currency part of a loyalty program, and it was fun. I was very junior. I worked myself up all the way. And in 2009, I I really was at the top, um, and uh, I was also working quite hard. Around seven o'clock one night, I received the call that I had lost my older sister. Um, and I just remember I was in the office. I thought I was alone, but we, there was somebody else there in the office. And I just started crying, came to ask, wow, what's happening? And, and it just, I felt so sad. And I started questioning, you know, why? You know, like, had she fulfilled her purpose? Which, quite frankly, probably she had. Because maybe it was just kicking me from the behind to say, wake up, what are you doing with your life? And I started reflecting whether, you know, what I was doing was actually, did it mean anything? Because my grandfather always used to say to, to, you know, to people or to us to say, if you do not live a life of service, that is a life wasted. And, and when I moved on to Zambia, my mother is really a go-getter, you know, like the sky's the limit. And, and I questioned whether, I, was I reaching for the skies? It didn't feel like that, you know, and... Was I living a life of service? No. I, yes, I had a house, I had a family, I had a car. I had a form of success, if you say that, but, but it just didn't feel like it. You know? So I, I quit my job, uh, lost a few shares, and I, it probably was an emotional decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to work in the post office, part of the government, and we were going to help people that were previously uh, unbanked to, to, to bank. And uh, we, we were hoping that they'd, post office would be able to do that profitably. So that for me was like, maybe this is, you know, uh, I suppose my why, but at the time I didn't call it that. This was like, this is my service. This is my giving back. This is the reason that um, I was put here on earth. And it's also the realization that she just died, no warning. So what if mine is tomorrow? What am I doing with today? It was just a very difficult time um, that I, I started reflecting. I struggled with it for quite a while, actually. So this was 2009, left my job within uh, four months, you know, um, and I moved to the post office. At the post office, it really didn't work out. I was headhunted in another company. But what was interesting in that company is every department was kind of encouraged to adopt a charity. So I adopted a charity that right. looks after street kids. It's called Kids Heaven. And at any point, there between 180 and 200 street kids. And this was a time when there was troubles in Zimbabwe, the DRC. So there was lots of street kids with, with foreigners that they were looking after. And every month, we would take these kids either for a hike or just on an outing, you know, to really show them how a family composition. So I'll take my kids, other people take their kids as well. And every month, we would ask for donations in, in the office, you know. Just about my friend <laughs> asking questions. And it was very clear as time went on that as soon as people see you coming at that time of the month, 
they they know they look busy because there's donor fatigue, you know. And uh, one of the people that I was doing this project with, who we were leading the committee, said to me, no, she's going to Kilimanjaro. And I said, but that's something my bucket list. I would love to come with you. And then I proposed to say, but I think we should use it to raise money, you know, for the home, because then hmm. we'll do something a lot more impactful and big without really begging the office. Right. And we did exactly that. Um, we raised uh, money. We enough to build an outdoor gym and we converted the room into a library because the kids needed a place to do their homework. Then something happened when we were handing over. One of the kids in the home, remember we used to take them out, so we interacted with them a lot, came to me and said, do you really come from the township? You know, which is like, do you come from the ghetto? (laughs) I really thought it was a joke until I realized she was serious. She, She just said, no, because the guys that come from Europe as exchange students, they live here. When they go, they do things like this for us. And, and, and I just realized that, you know, I saw myself in her growing up and watching all those cartoons and thinking they are epic, but they don't look like me. You know, they, they're flying around. Nobody around me flies, so I can't be a superhero. That's exactly what it was. It was a sense of self-disbelief, you know, and it was me because I'm a mother of two mm. boys and I wondered how much I was doing to show them that help comes from within before they looked elsewhere. Um, you know, so I reflected on what I had done with Kili and made a decision that I was going to summit the seven highest peaks on the seven continents around the world, but use it to raise money for education. And that was the turning point. And I haven't looked back since, you know, I've uh, raised over 2.6 million grants, built about 10 libraries, and I'm still going. Wow, that's such an amazing story. So would you say that that's when you discovered your why, why you do this? absolutely, because it just felt good. You know, like I said at the time, I didn't know what it was. Probably called it the purpose, but it just felt good. Mm -hmm. And, And knowing why I was doing it made it easy for me to go back and back again, even when things looked tough. Even when everybody around me just thought she's now going crazy, you know. Um, I just understood. I knew why I was doing it, you know. You go into Everest, it doesn't work out, you come back. You build a library for about 5,000 children to benefit from. And it's not just that year, it's the year after because the books are going to be there. And the fact that if you give them education, they are more likely than not going to educate their their children. So it's from mm. one generation to another. That's just satisfying. That's so inspiring. So let's talk about Everest. I mean, you, you've done some incredible things, but the summiting of Everest is it's somewhat pivotal. So I want to talk about that a little. I mean, you are the first Black African woman to summit Everest. So congratulations for, for achieving that and showing us what's possible. But I want to talk about the journey to Everest because I know it took you about four to five years to, to do it. Was there any time where you felt, I'm not going to try this again? Maybe this is not for everyone. You can't win everything. So, so let me, I'll just stop here. Did you ever feel that way during, you know, in, in that four or five year period? Absolutely, especially 2017 when I was left for dead. I remember waking up there and looking at Everest so close and yet so far. And I wondered if all those people that, I, that said I couldn't, you know, I didn't belong on the mountain, you know, um, I wasn't the right kind of person that they sponsor if they were right. 
and and for me, you know, Akigo, it it was the lowest point in my journey. When you sit and wonder if the naysayers are right, when you stop believing, when they say yo you don't belong here, and inside you've got this fire of I'm going to defy them, I am going to show them that I belong where I want to. So that next time they see somebody like me. They don't question them because of the color of their skin, because they don't have enough testosterone, but because of their ability. You know, give them the benefit of the doubt, like they give any other person on the mountain. And um, at that point, that was gone. I just was really defeated um, in 2017. Any other time before then and after then, absolutely not. You know, I always knew, and and the one thing and, and a methodology that I've picked for myself is to always look at what did I learn from this experience. Every time I have like two pages of things that I would have learned from the experience. So let's start with my Everest journey, my initial one. I got onto Everest in 2014, you know, um, after I had gone to the French Alps, trained, um, and uh, I got there, and I think the third day, an avalanche killed 16 shepherds. People, when I look back today, they probably deserved to be on the mountain more than I did. They were a lot more experienced. They had years, you know, they were a lot more trained, um, but they died. And and I remember just getting shaken, going to people that had more experience to try and figure out, so what do we do? They were just as shocked and afraid as I was. You know, I, I just remember one person actually picked up their bag and, and ran away from the base camp. So it was just very clear that it was a personal journey. And and if there was ever a time that I, I could have given up, it was this time. Because I went to Everest with all these romantic ideas of, you know, I'm going to get to the top. I have read about people dying, but it doesn't happen to me, you know. But you get there and this thing happens and it just becomes real. Um, and, 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 and a friend sent me a message to say, Figure out what you are meant to learn from this experience. And it will be very right. clear how you need to move forward. That was my saving grace. And that, that's when I started doing these lists. And, and what went wrong? We lost 16 amazing shapers we experienced. I didn't get to summit. But you know what? I learned my weaknesses on the climb. I learned, I, I climbed other mountains in the Himalayas. I became a lot more wiser. I learned also that, yes, people die. It could be me. I could be one of them. So I need to, to be careful. I need to be cautious. Uh, you know, I learned that um, my training, which was mainly in the gym, wasn't good enough. I needed to do more cardio. You know, I started running. I started cycling. So there was a lot more to look forward to when I went back. Um, and I went back in 2015 on the basis of the positives that I put up. And this is where I, I really say this is failing forward. And, and it's right. also making a conscious decision that the world and anybody next to me is not going to tell me when I've succeeded or I failed. I decide that, you know. And, and it's only when I've failed to learn from the specific experience that I've failed. Because if you look at all my uh, attempts, which were um, three before I submitted on the fourth one, they all play their role in my summit on, in the, uh, on the 16th of May, 2019. So I went back in 2015 uh, and 2015, 
there was a huge earthquake in Nepal that killed, I think they say about 9,000 people in Nepal. We lost about 22 people at Everest Base Camp. And again, the mountain was closed. Um, it, it, that didn't scare me as the first time. It was scary because we, we were walking up from Camp 1 to Camp 2 and suddenly the glacier beneath us started shaking. You know, oh, wow. you just don't think that. But it happened last year. We can't have the same thing, you know. And at the time, there was no avalanche that we could see. It was just shaking. So we were, both my shepherd and I were shocked. And he put his carabiner onto mine and he says, we are jumping. And he was like really confident. And after, they say it's less than two minutes, but it really felt like five minutes. Everything was quiet. He starts removing the carabiner. He says, we are all right. But that earthquake shook all the mountains around us and they started avalanching towards us. That was the most scary. Most scary because the shepherd who was confident in the first when the ground was shaking, suddenly he started praying. Oh, my And he looked scared. And I was thinking, that's it. I'm done. Like this God of his that he's praying to oh, wow. doesn't know me. I need to just go to my Jesus because that's what I am a Christian. That's what I, 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 was, uh, I, I was raised doing and believing in. And, and, and I always say to my team, it's really, it showed me what kind of a leader I want to be in, in times of crisis. You know, confident, assertive. When he was confident and assertive and saying we jump over a crevasse, that was crazy. We would have died. But because he was confident and looked like he knew what he was doing, I was going to jump with him. But when he started praying and looking scared, to when I didn't understand, if he was saying we're going to the left, I was like, Jesus, we're going to the right. You know, it's time for, for us to, you know, get up, whether it's his parents, his leaders in an organization or, in, um, you know, in business, to, to be assertive, especially at a time like this when COVID is shaking the whole world. And if mm. we make a decision that is not a correct decision, fell, fell forward, get up and move quickly. It's, it's better than not trying or not showing leadership and scattering the team because you achieve absolutely nothing. That's incredible. You know, I'm still thinking about this why. I think about the the extreme nature of the path you've chosen in order to to support other people and and wonder if one's why evolves over time because I read that you actually had an accident before your fourth at attempt and you were like in a coma for 3 weeks or something like that. Um how strong does one's why have to be to, to face death and then get up and, and continue? I'm, I'm really amazed by that. I actually had an accident in 2016. That, that's 2016. Uh, 2016, before my third expedition. Okay. For me, that's again, goes back to we don't have control over when our time will end, right? People say, oh, the mountains are dangerous. But what almost killed me, landed me in a coma for three weeks, was a bicycle that I was, I was riding, you know, right here back home. So whether we lock ourselves in our rooms, when our time is up, it's up. What is important is what are we doing with today? What am I right. Is this a learning moment? Am I creating the impact that I want to see today? Because tomorrow is not guaranteed. The, the 
extreme nature of what I've chosen is something that I would have done whether I was using it to raise awareness about education and its importance or raising money for education or not. I could many people climb Everest and take a selfie, and that's it. I could choose to do that, especially because mm-hmm. most of my expeditions I funded myself, right? Um, and, and the reason I'm saying that is because now that we are in lockdown, a friend of mine and I still went and did is challenged a Guinness World Record and did spinning for eight hours and raised money for education because that doesn't change. Um, but I've used what I love doing, what I could have done whether I'm raising money or not, to make that difference. The nice thing about it, about Everest and the clients, says it's given me a voice to create a bigger impact. If all I was mm. doing was walking from my house to you know the next town and back, you know, I wouldn't have been able to create the impact that I have. So it's me just saying, I'll do this anyway. How can I use it, you know, to make a difference? I am an accountant. How can I use that skill to make a difference, to leave my world just a little bit better than I found it? And, 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 and the reality is education is for me. Maybe yours is something else. And, and there's mm-hmm. a book that I did that says a gift to the next generation. I am here, you know, and we have 50% of women in parliament. I'm, I'm daring to step on top of the world because in a South African context, some women stood up and said enough is enough. They walked to Pretoria and hence we have the freedom that we have. What is my kids, your kids, our grandkids going to say about us, our generation? What are we doing so that they can actually use that as a stepping stone to you know, to um, their success. And, and and if you look at it, how relevant and real that is today, the world is continuously becoming a global village, especially with COVID. Hmm. You know? And uh, as it becomes a global village, it will be unacceptable if this African in this global village continues to be a second-class citizen. And you and I can stop that. And, and hmm. we have to stop that by stepping on top of the world. We, we have to stop that by creating representation in all fields so that those that are coming behind me don't say, can they do Everest, can they not? They'll say it's been done. How can you do it faster, you know? Yeah. It not take four times to, to, to summit it, but first time, because I dared to do it. And, and it's such a blessing. That's awesome. Talking about children, you know, you said you said earlier that you have two boys, you know, and in listening to a lot of your interviews, I mean, people ask how you felt, you know, summiting and what it did for you. And and I, I wonder what it what it did for your children. We're, we're here talking about creating representation for the next generation. So so in your home, what did this do for your two boys? So I, they are obviously very proud. Uh, one of the things I must say, the first time I went to Everest, they were like, yeah, bye, mom. Uh, <laughs> the shepherds died. It's like, uh, this thing kills people. So it's like, it's become real. So it's real conversations. And we always joke and I say to them, I'm going to take life-preserving steps, you know. So I'm not going to summit at all costs because I know I need to come back to you, right? If anything happens, it's not because I was careless, you know. Um, just like, Accidents happen on the road. We don't stop driving, but we drive a lot more carefully. So that's a commitment that I've made um, with them. Um, my son wrote a song for me after I summited. 
And he says, um, he talks about how I have shown him that perseverance and hard work uh, pays. Some people may think I'm an overnight hero. They don't know mm. how much work I've done. That made me cry because mm. it just, it said a lot of what I had been saying to him, <laughs> thinking it's going here and coming out there, um, you know. And, and I, I suppose I don't have to do something that extreme for him to, to pick up on that. The other thing that is a bit of a challenge uh, for me is that the younger one absolutely loves soccer. It's him saying now, I, I feel like I'm blackmailed sometimes, but mom, that is my passion. That is my climbing. So now I have to support, do I support that and, and, and not support school or do I support the two? So we've come up with a, with a deal. I still work. I have a corporate job. I have my, <laughs> my own business and I climb. So he needs to right. give everything that he's doing the same amount of focus. And that's worked brilliantly, you know. And, and the other thing is, through my work, it's created a bit of a social consciousness, which my grandparents passed on to me. You know, especially when I started supporting kids having the home that I mentioned to you. I used to take them. And when I would say eat, because they're kids that do not have food, it wasn't a myth. They knew of kids that were street kids that didn't have food. And that I'm hoping has changed something in them, not just temporarily, but permanently. And I'm hoping it's making them a better global citizens. That's amazing. Um, you, you talk about this whole thing about extraordinary and ordinary. And I wanted you to break it down a little bit for us. That's actually interesting. When I started climbing, I, as I had on my website, I said, I'm just an ordinary African woman trying to reach extraordinary heights. Um, and, and I've subsequently changed that. I believe that we are all uniquely extraordinary. And being ordinary is a choice. That's hmm. a change in mindset. Because growing up, it's like they are the superheroes. We don't do that. You know, people like us don't do that. No, I don't believe that God makes mistakes. He put us here at this time for a specific reason because he knows we are perfect for it. We're the ones that stop ourselves. And many times it's because we think they're doing it better. Let me do it like them. No, they are uniquely extraordinary. They've got their own role. Find your role and shine because you are meant to shine. You know, we are all uniquely extraordinary and let's not to the ordinary. I like that we are all uniquely extraordinary and we are the ones who choose. You can choose to be ordinary or you can choose to live out your unique, extraordinary self. Live your extraordinary self, you know, be yourself yeah. because you are extraordinary. And it puts less pressure, at least on me, because I'm not competing with anyone. I rock up on Everest, I trained on my own, I am unique, I'm running my own race because I know that I belong there. That's, that's awesome. So you went on, you, it didn't stop at Everest, you've actually done five of the seven summits, right? So I've done four of the seven summits and one pole. So I'm, I'm trying to do seven summits and two poles. So I've wow. got five of those and four mountains and one pole. So I started with Kilimanjaro. Um, I did uh, Mount Elbrus, which is the highest in Europe. I did Aconcagua, which is the highest in South America. And I did Everest, 
And in December, just before COVID hit, I did um, the South Pole. What is interesting is the previous ones, I was doing them slowly because mostly I was funding myself. Um, but uh, after I summited Everest, I became a paid athlete. <laughs> so I partnered with Momentum and they are funding the rest of my expeditions. Uh, so hoping COVID, you know, opens uh, the world up and uh, we are all set to fly elsewhere and climb. I'm looking forward to that. Um, just talking about being now being a paid athlete, you know, what's, what, what does that mean and how is that different? Are you training different? Is your approach any different? What does that mean for you now being a paid athlete? So I'm afraid I still have a job. So <laughs> <laughs> the only thing is my expeditions are paid for and, and expeditions are not necessarily cheap. So um, my sponsor pays for the expeditions. I worry about my training. I worry about my day-to-day um, and so forth that I still worry about, but I don't have to worry about, you know, I need to go to Everest because the the um, sponsorship that I've gotten is for the Explorer Grand Slam, climbing the seven highest peaks around the world, going to the North Pole and the South Pole, as I explained previously, and they covered all that. So I'm able to to, to pay that. Before you got the sponsorship, you were raising money yourself to go on these climbs and expeditions. So if you can just talk us through a little bit about how you raised the money or secured the funds to actually, you know, do these um, climbs. So a lot of the climbs I was saving myself. I was uh, also, uh, I had to sacrifice, you know, uh, like I'm not going to change my car every three years or two years. Um, I had to forego some holidays. You know, I had to make certain sacrifices because it was important to me. Like I said, I was going to climb whether I raised the money or not. Then I would use this for companies that would help me build the libraries. I would sell them the idea that I'll take your branding and your flag to the top of the world or to the top of this mountain in exchange. Please help me build the library. And they would donate the money to the library. Uh, towards the library, I beg your pardon. I would also um, talk to them about any interviews that I would do or either on TV or on radio. I'll be able to mention their name. Remember, if they were to advertise on TV, they would pay so much money for that advertising yeah. space. So I had to be innovative. I had to sell them to say, I'll be on TV. I'll talk, be talking about climbing because journalists are interested in that. But if I mention your name, you donate money towards the cause. And that's how I was able to build um, the libraries because then companies would donate the money to the charity. The charity would give them a Section 18A certificate to say you've donated because none of the money comes to me personally. It goes to the charities. The charity gives them the money which is tax deductible and the children win. Congratulations on that. So, so what was the South Pole like? It wasn't easy. It wasn't what I expected. You know, I went there with the mentality I've just done Everest. How tough can this be? Um, and I always say to people, it was not Everest. It was never rest. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot more windy. There is no place to hide because it's like just open, right? It was, I think it was about minus 42, minus 50 with the winds. Um, and it's skiing for one hour. You stopped for 10 minutes. 
on the 11th minute with military precision, you go and you do that for the whole day. The other thing that was interesting, which was um, during the season, it's like it doesn't go dark. So the sun just goes around 24 hours. You know, exciting. I remember getting excited the first few days because I just thought, oh, my God, you know, my grandmother always to say that there will be no night there, you know. After the third day, you're like, no, 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 no. I need my curtains. <laughs> I, need, I need darkness, you know, because this is just too much. Because you wake up at 2 o'clock in the night and the sun is in your face. It's just, just it, it was, it was, yeah, it was hectic. And what I loved about it is everything you take on the on, on Antarctica or on the expedition, you need to bring back everything, absolutely everything. So it's it's quite clean, and everybody's conscious of the environment. Um, you pitch your own tents on Everest. The Sherpas put tents for you. Uh, pretty much, what you do is just climb. There, you ski yourself. You carry your own stuff. You pitch your own tent. You dismantle the tents. Wow. You go the dead. So it was a lot of hard work and I have a lot of respect for polar expeditions yeah, than I did before I went. Wow. So what would you say are, are some of the key things you've learned about yourself and how you approach life? A lot. First of all, I think they've humbled me. You know, um, you, you go out there, you realize how much of a small speck we are in the bigger scheme of things, you know. It's also realizing that I am capable of absolutely anything that I put my mind to. But more importantly, you know, that proverb, the African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go further, go together. It's really the spirit of Ubuntu, the importance of partnerships, but the right partnerships. Uh, that is That goes without saying. You get shapers that take you all the way up to base camp. That's enough. You say thank you. That's not to say they haven't contributed. They have. But those are maybe not the people you need to get onto your to your summit. You need different gear. You need different shapers. You need to up your game, you know, but you need partnerships. I think if you, we all want to be part of a, an A-team, hmm. it's important to be an A-team player because the team is not made up from knowing, you know. So I've learned discipline. I've learned to bring my, my A game and I've learned to walk away from partnerships that don't work for me. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So talk to us a bit about some of these projects because you've raised an incredible amount of money. 2.6, yeah, 2.6. 2.6, that's incredible. Congratulations to you and your team. So talk to us about some of the projects that this money has gone to over the years. I've supported charities that have to do with education. Um, I started a group on Facebook called Summits with a Purpose, just to say Summits with with a Purpose. Although that's my NGO, I don't collect money. I raise money for the Mandela Libraries Libraries Project because I'm a Mandela Libraries Ambassador. And I've I've promised to build five libraries for for this uh, project, and I have done so. Um, And I now am building digital libraries with iSchool Africa. So iSchool Africa is the CSI arm of Apple in South Africa, the iStore. And uh, what we do is we go to schools in townships and villages 
and we put in these digital libraries. We train the teachers. We make sure that they are digitally literate to be able to manage the the, um, the library for the kids. And uh, they are supported beyond me being there, just like the Mandela libraries. For as long as the school can prove that they have not sold the school, they'll get at least five years supply of books. So I like these projects because they're sustainable. They're not mm-hmm. just dependent on you. And we also work with the government to say, you know, this is a government school. Uh, we are doing this, but we want your support so that we make sure that they are looked after beyond us just putting them in there. iSchool Africa manages the library on an ongoing basis. They update the apps on the um, on the iPads that we, we donate to the school. Uh, and they make sure that they track them. So they don't track what the kids are using uh, on the um, on the iPad, but they do track to make sure that they are where they should be. Hmm. Another thing that is nice is they put age-appropriate um, material onto the iPad. So some of the libraries that we did in December um, were to kids that are in primary school. So it's how to count, how to spell, uh, stuff like that, you know. And and some of the pictures that I'm comfortable to share with you, it's just amazing. You see some of these kids, oh, I haven't used an iPad, but within minutes, it's just user friendly. You know, especially the girls showing the boys how it's done. That's <laughs> like, okay. But it, it's just um, it, it, being able to do that, it, has really changed my life. It's more satisfying than anything that I've done that I've been paid for, you know. Um, and I'm hoping that um, it changes their lives in a way. Mm-hmm. And they too are able to do the same for other people. For other people. Absolutely. Because for me, education is the one thing that my my parents invested in me that's been able to take me to places, allowed me to speak to you, allowed me to dare to dream about Everest. And I, I would like the same for them so that they can believe in themselves and we can change the narrative of the next generation. Yeah. Thank you so much for the work that you do. So what's next for you? Well, so for now, I'm waiting for um, you know the lockdown to be lifted. I was meant to go to the North Pole in April 2020. It was moved to April 2021, and it's been moved again to April 2022. So for that, Um, Denali, uh, that's in North America, moved that to 2022. More likely than not, uh, depending, uh, I may do Custer's Pyramid and Mount Vincent at the end of the year. Um, So we'll see, you know. And did, did did a little bird tell me that you might be starting a podcast? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, actually. It's really a podcast. I'm calling it Because It's There. You know, it's something that uh, George Mallory answered when he was asked, why climb mountains? Why do you climb Everest? He says, because it's there. So it's, a, it's an answer which is really, you know, um, one would say very clever. But quite frankly, it, oh, it, it really says why being a leader, at least for me, I'm asking myself, I'm asking you, why be a leader? Because you are, because it's there. Why be extraordinary? Because you are, you know. We all are extraordinary. We are all leaders, irrespective of where we are. If I'm at the desk as a receptionist, I am a leader in my own right. Leadership is not about the office. 
and I'm hoping that it inspires Africans on the continent to take their leadership role. We keep saying, let's claim that seat at the table. No, we've never lost it. We've always been at the table. You know, let's just act like it. Let's be ourselves. Mm. Let's be leaders. And I'm hoping to invite people that have made it, people that have struggled before they've made it, to share their experiences so that we can learn from each other. Fantastic. So so do you coach? Yes. Do you coach people? I love that. That's when I started coaching because what happened is as soon as lockdown happened, I had international um, speaking engagements. They were all canceled, stuck. So I was like, okay, hmm, how am I going to do this? Then I did a few webinars. I did a webinar in the UK, a webinar in Australia. I did two here I just to put myself out there. And then I discovered, you know what? I could actually coach people because normally I mentor people. I don't charge them. Oh, this could be a business. So I built, um, you know, my coaching business and I thought but maybe I need certification so I went to UCT University of Cape Town I certified and um, I did strength binder coach and that's US based I certified and I started taking clients wow that's amazing so Sarah how do you actually keep it all together how do you juggle all these different different things um that, that's an interesting question. Sometimes I ask myself the same. Somebody asked me that, and I came up with a clever answer that I must have from somewhere. <laughs> we all have 24 hours. So if we sleep eight hours, which I must admit I don't sleep eight hours exactly, and we have eight hours for the boss, you know, there's eight hours. I can decide what to use the eight hours for. If I'm going to spend four with my family and I've got the other four, what am I doing with that? How much of it am I using to train? How much? Of, like, there's just no time. Whether it's when I'm sitting, if you look behind me, you probably can't see it. Let me turn around. There's my um, my spinning bike. You know, um, if I want a Zoom call and I need to actually spin, I bring my bike close by and I'm listening. I'm participating, but I'm doing something. We can multitask, but more importantly, is to understand. What is your why? What is important to you? And how do you prioritize that? So anything that's important to me, I prioritize it. What is not, I'm very quick to just let it go. I'll do it another day because it's not important at that time. I think many times we try and do everything and we end up being mediocre. And you can't do a half mm. job. You do a half job on the mountain, you lose your life. At least if you do a half job in business, you may lose money. They may forgive you. <laughs> but on the mountain, you will remain up there. Wow. So my last question, Sarah, is if you could give a, one piece of advice to women building their businesses, building their careers, facing their own Everests in their, in their lives, you know, what, what advice would you give to them? The biggest one, you've got this. You are extraordinary. You know, be yourself, believe in yourself, and don't be shy to ask for help. And it's important, but it's the right help. But at the same time, be comfortable to walk away when the help or the partnership that you're in is not working for your success. You know, we, we don't have too much time on earth. We, we have limited time. So guard it jealously. Use it meaningfully. Be accountable for yourself before you look elsewhere. I know people say, but you're a mother. 
Why are you doing this? And most of those people would never ask a man to say, why are you on Everest? But you are a father. You know, we are equal. We're here to create the same impact. If you look at how amazing a job women leaders have done during COVID, it just says to us that your hand must be up. Be the leader that you need to be because the world is missing out on you. you know? and, and I think keep stepping. If you fail, that's okay. Fail forward and learn from everything because success is yours. It's waiting on the other side. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you're not already subscribed, please do so on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review so we know how we're doing. I'm Akego Koye, and you have been listening to African Business Stories.